Hello, hello, my dear audience here in the United States and out there in the big world. I am Peter Resnick and welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick's Toolbox. I have to tell you, I'm doing two of my most favorite things beyond spending time with my family. I'm having uh, hot chocolate, meringue hot chocolate. I think they should be paying me commissions because I promote their product. I love it so much and I love talking to you. Uh, I love speaking to you for years already. I have been posting videos on YouTube on various subjects of wellness and consciousness way over 100 and I like it. it I get very nice feedback. But I have never been as excited as I am these days since I've been doing this radio show. Uh, I have become so aware of what a magical world we're living in. From where I come from, two days from now, it will be exactly 40 years since I came to the United States from Ukraine, former Soviet Union. And I would write a letter to my friend and count three weeks. That's how long it took him to get the letter and then count three more weeks to get his reply because he would reply right away and I would reply right away. It took six weeks to exchange letters. Uh, I feel sorry for my children actually now that they cannot feel the joy that I feel. I am still enjoying the fact that we have this magical communication. For them, it's just normal. And for me, I'm still marveling. Last week I spoke to you, my dear audience, uh, and the same day I received emails from here, from the United States, from Germany, from Poland, from Kurdistan. For me, I am living science fiction. Uh, even in science fiction, yes, we read about traveling in two other ga galaxies, but I never read about being able to communicate the way we communicate now. I talked to my student in Germany and then let, let him look at my screen while I'm here in New York City. This is magic for me. Uh, some of you downloaded my program, Six Pillars of Well-Being, after I spoke uh, last week, and I already got very nice reviews. Thank you. By the way, if you have any questions as you go through the program, please do not hesitate writing to me. Yes, we really live in a magical world. Uh, some 60 years ago, Aldous Huxley wrote a novel, Island. And in that no novel, he coined the new term, neurotheology. And today, neurotheology is not a novel, not some fiction. It's a legitimate science. And the world-known neuroscientist studies people's relationship with God. That's, that's amazing to me. <laughs> we'll talk about it later. I'm just teasing you. Uh, and as for now, I want you know that every week I speak, every other week I speak on various subjects related to healing and wellness. And every other week I invite some outstanding specialists in the healing arts. Most of the subjects I cover are connected with one principle or by one principle. The principle presented so elegantly by the ancient Egyptians, that which is above is below, and that which is below is above. The same idea 
was expressed graphically in a beautiful way by the ancient Chinese through the symbols of yin and yang, black within white and white within black, meaning that which is inside is outside and that which is outside is inside. Whether I speak about night dreams or face reading or human morphology, or I speak about physical illnesses to which mental and emotional stressors almost always are contributing factors, or I speak about mental and emotional challenges, which sooner or later become expressed as physical illnesses. It is always about the inner and the outer being mirror images of one another. And in my work, regardless from what end I start, uh, physical or mental, it is about helping a person to achieve order and balance between the two, the inner and the outer. Last week, those of you who were with me last week, but I remind uh, those who haven't, last week I introduced to you the first pillar of well-being from my upcoming book, Six Pillars of Well-Being. We spoke about the physical reality and how to keep this foundation healthy and balanced. We have five more pillars to journey through. The second pillar, our emotional baggage and thoughts and self-talk. The third pillar, social conditioning and the influences of our society, community and family, which affect our lives and of which we may may not be aware. Uh, the fourth pillar, our unconscious beliefs, which often govern the choices we make. The fifth pillar, our conscious attitudes and character traits, and the sixth pillar, our moral and spiritual beliefs. We'll continue that journey next week, but today, ladies and gentlemen, I have a very special guest who will bring us to face the sixth pillar, our spiritual beliefs and how they affect our lives. When I address this same subject, uh, as I get to talking about it, uh, in a few weeks, it will be doing this by taking you through inner journeys. In other words, by guiding you through subjective experiences. Our guest deals with the same question, but through the means of an objective science. Let me tell you just before I introduce you, uh, our guest to you, let me tell you a few words about how I came to follow and admire our guest's work and read his books. About eight or nine years ago, I picked up a book, I believe it was in Barnes and Nobles, titled How God Changes Our Brain, or How God Changes Your Brain. I looked through the first few pages and found a little heading, uh, The Science of God. And I remember actually saying out loud, that's my man. People looked at me as if I were crazy. Maybe they misinterpreted my excitement. And I bought the book, you see, because whenever I would hear or read anything about science and God, the two were always presented as opposites. And I would think science literally means in Greek knowledge. This is an objective knowledge, the one which can be measured and observed by everyone and replicated in, in the same manner. That is an objective science. But also there is science 
which is subjective, like imagination or our feelings or relationship with the infinite, they are not the opposite. They do not negate each other. They are just uh, a concept or ideas that require different measurements to be understood. And here I found someone to dare to work on creating a bridge between the two. So that is why I'm so, so happy today to introduce to you, my dear audience, Dr. Andrew uh, Newberg. Dr. Newberg is a research director at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health and professor of the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Scientists at Thomas Jefferson University. Dr. Newberg is a board certified in both internal medicine and nuclear medicine. He has published over 200 scholarly articles, 10 books, some of which became national bestsellers. Um, How God Changes Your Brain is just one of them. Dr. Newberg has been features in, featured in the media throughout the world and listed as one of the 30 most influential neuroscientists alive today. Dr. Newberg, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your program, and thanks for the wonderful introduction. And I, I, I made it very short. If I would list all your credentials, it would take another five minutes. So, <laughs> Dr. Newberg, I, honestly, I have to tell you, I'm so grateful that you made the time uh, to speak to us today. I know, I feel like I know you. I feel like we're old friends because I know you through your books. <laughs> and now I have an opportunity to talk to you. So, but and some of you probably know and read your, uh, of your work and read your books, but some of you may not. So I would love to start with Andrew Newberg, the man. Uh, tell sure. us why medicine? Why of all, all areas of medicine, neurology? Well, you know, uh, I, the, the medicine was something that um, I guess is just something I always wanted to do. Um, we, we used to joke about this back in medical school that, you know, there were just certain people that, you know, from birth kind of knew that, that they should be a doctor. And uh, I'm not sure how that calling came about exactly other than I love science and always wanted to, I always felt it was absolutely essential to work to help other people. And that just seemed like the natural profession for doing, for embracing both of those uh, perspectives. But, um, but the, you know, as, as I went through my training and as I I grew up, um, there were some very fundamental, like kind of burning questions in my mind, and they were more philosophical questions. In fact, I guess the big question that always lay at the heart of everything I do um, has been really, how do we as human beings um, understand the reality that's around us? How do we make sense of reality? And I guess more importantly, how do we know if the reality that we perceive uh, is right? And you know, I was so struck by the fact that there were different religious traditions and different political perspectives, and, and somehow everybody thinks that they're right. And so mm-hmm. to me, I sort of felt like, well, if we're all looking at the same world, how come we're coming away with such differences in terms of how we think about the world? So um, that to me was a fundamental question. And I thought, well, um, you know, the first thing I've got to start with is the human brain. And that was what led me down the sort of the, the neurological path and trying to understand uh, the part of us that helps to put together all of our perceptions and give us some, some sense of what the world is all about. 
And while I, you know, I love science and I, I think science has so much to offer about our world and particularly our physical world, um, there were certain aspects of our, our brain and particularly our consciousness and, uh, and how we sort of think about, uh, you know, our, our, the essence of who we are as human beings that seemed to go beyond what just science could answer. And, and so I started to look at philosophies and, uh, and different religious and spiritual traditions uh, and realized that this is a very complex topic, a very complex question that needs uh, a very broad and kind of multidisciplinary perspective to take. And that was what really started to lead me down my own thought processes, my own meditations, if you will, um, exploring that very basic question. And so for me, neurotheology uh, kind of grew out of this idea of trying to understand ourselves as human beings, trying to understand reality, and how do we take two of the most important parts of who, you know, of, of what humanity has been, our science and technology on one side, and our sort of spiritual and religious uh, and philosophical uh, perspectives on the other side, uh, how do we bring them all together to, to address those questions? And that's really, you know, where I started from, uh, you know, asking some of those questions even back when I was in grade school and um, wow. and has led me to where I am today. <laughs> Dr. Newberg, you know, Still somebody answered the question, out, <laughs> actually, that, that I asked you, why? And Leela Tolstoy, over 100 years ago, way over 100 years ago, actually said, there are people who live their lives normally enjoy in their life and don't question anything. And there are people who got right. the bug. You got the bug, <laughs> I got the bug. And the bug is you begin to question, why are we here? What is reality? Right. And is there God? That's what he mm -hmm. said. And, and I, I meet people in my life and they do get, do have the bug and people who don't have the bug and people who don't yeah. have the bug just marvel. Why, why are you questioning? Enjoy your life. Right. Why are you wasting your life on that? Right. <laughs> and, us, right. and we all think, how could you not? <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Life. Now, yeah. Dr. Newberg, imagine, I, I would like to, uh, I don't know if you know about our audience. My, uh, the studio, a few from the, from the studio told me that our audience are middle class, middle aged people, uh, open minded. And, and in my experience, it has been so true since I started doing this radio show, I get this wonderful, wonderful emails from people from, from, from around the world. And so I would mm -hmm. like you to do this, if you don't mind. Imagine that you are in a class. You, you know, you, you teach a class. And you, now, these days, you know, on Zoom, people can teach thousands of people. So sure. people came to hear you because you are a neuroscientist. And let's say some know of what your specialization, if I can say, is some people don't. Mm -hmm. So think, what would you like to tell them about the research that you have done in your earlier times? And and I'm familiar with many of your books. Like, I, I think there are 10 altogether. I didn't read all, sure. all of them, but I read most of them. Uh, and <laughs> so, and what, how your research evolved and what it brought you to uh, now. So if you have the floor. Mm. Well, I, you know, picking up from what I said, um, you know, I was kind of in my own mind um, thinking so much about looking at the brain, but looking at the sort of spiritual side of who we are as human beings as well. 
And um, when I actually entered into medical school was uh, I, when I really had an opportunity to bring them together. And I was very fortunate that uh, when I was in medical school, I met two wonderful mentors. Uh, one of them was in the neuroimaging realm. And so we started to do all kinds of research looking at Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's and depression and, uh, you know, a whole bunch of just neurological and psychiatric conditions using imaging and trying to understand what was going on in the brains of people who had these different issues. Uh, at the same time, I met a second mentor who had also got that bug, as you said, um, you know, interested in asking questions about uh, the nature of our religious and spiritual selves and the nature of consciousness and how we understand and experience the world. And so we started to talk about, well, what's going on in the brain when people do these kinds of things? And eventually a kind of, you know, the proverbial light bulb went off where I said, well, wait a minute, you know, if we're, if we're using brain scans to study Alzheimer's and depression, why can't we use brain scans to study religious and spiritual beliefs and experiences? And that was really what kind of launched the ability to explore neurotheology in a way that we never would have had an opportunity before. And this goes back to the 1990s. And, and really since that time, um, we have done all kinds of studies looking at a variety of, re of, of um, practices, uh, prayer, meditation, yoga, um, you know, and, and across all traditions. We've looked at uh, all the monotheistic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhist, Hindu, Sikhism. Um, we studied Brazilian mediums uh, trying to connect with the spirit world. Um, so, you know, we've, we've used our brain scan technology to be able to look at what goes on in the brain of people who are engaged in these different practices. We've, we've used brain imaging to explore different types and different aspects of people's beliefs about religion and spirituality, um, including people who don't believe in religion and spirituality. And, um, and, and then ultimately kind of put together this information in the books that you mentioned that, um, that really do try to look at it from a combined scientific as well as uh, religious or spiritual perspective. You know, how do, we, how do we understand these questions? How do we understand what these beliefs and practices are about? What does science tell us about them? Um, and, and really, uh, you know, one of the things that I think it lies at the core of a lot of what I do is what I call a passion for inquiry. That, uh, and again, it's sort of like what you were talking about with that bug. It's like, we're, you know, yeah. we're always just asking questions. And, uh, and I love asking questions. And then we get a, a, a study and we find something out. And I say, well, that's really great. But what about this? You know, and what about that? And so um, that whole ability to just kind of keep pushing and, and trying to understand what all of this means for us in terms of understanding who we are as human beings. So that's, that's really a, a very brief synopsis of a, uh, of a career so far that has um, allowed me to do a lot of really fun stuff and, um, you know, and explore some areas that I'm, I'm very passionate about and, and I think hopefully will be important for, for lots of people to think about. Mm. Now, uh, a lot of people in, in what in the holistic field, uh, talk about our mind and, and my specialty is mind-body integrative therapy. I work with people right. who suffer from depression and anxiety, but also with uh, people who have cancer. Uh, mm. But I rarely have heard people define clearly the difference between the brain and the mind. So some actually, mm. uh, except Larry Dorsey in his writings, in, you probably know Larry Dorsey, and he's a remarkable, yeah. remarkable thinker and doctor. Uh, 
I, mm. If you don't mind uh, speaking do. about <laughs> how you understand the mind and the brain. Um, well, you know, it, it's a really interesting question, actually, go, you know, going back to the term neurotheology, um, I, I wrote a book called Principles of Neurotheology, and, and yeah. the first principle is about definitions. Um, and uh, and so defining terms like mind and brain, soul, spirit, religion, um, these are all really challenging questions, and, and, and there isn't usually a simple answer. I mean, of course, when you're talking specifically about mind versus brain, um, the question is, do we take a dualistic approach? And we say, well, we have this biological stuff that's in our brain and neurotransmitters and chemicals and, uh, and different, you know, sodium and potassium ions crossing neural membranes, um, which is all part of the biology of who we are. But then we also have what seems to arise, uh, you know, out of that brain, which are our thoughts and our feelings and our experiences, the, the, the non-tangible things. Um, and then the question becomes is how are they related to each other? Um, you know, are these uh, two different ways of looking at the same thing? Um, is it that uh, the biology of our brain produces these experiences? Um, is it possible that the universe itself is basically mind or consciousness and that the physical world kind of derives from that? Um, I don't think we know. I don't think there is a, a great answer just yet. And that, to me, is one of the things that I hope neurotheology helps us with, which is to say, you know, how do we look at a definition in these terms like mind and brain? And can we separate them fully? How integrated are they? And what are the causal arrows between them, which is causing which to happen? Um, my guess is that it's probably very much uh, very intertwined, um, that our biology uh, affects what we think and believe and affects the mind in a certain way. And yet our mind affects our biology as well. Um, but I don't know that for sure. And, uh, and that's part of what uh, I hope our future research projects will continue to look at, you know, how do we differentiate that? But it's a, it's a great question. And uh, I wish there was a simple answer. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, certain spiritual traditions actually do answer this question. And then the, the, the trick would be simply to see if th that particular spiritual tradition is speaking the truth. For example, in Judaism, what we have is a concept that uh, the the brain is simply physical apparatus, and you, I'm sure you're familiar with it, physical apparatus, mm -hmm. like a radio set that receives uh, information, and we, it, information comes, the mind comes from what what is called neshama, the, the soul, and it's downloaded through the physical apparatus. And, and of course, if, if the uh, radio set is broken, there is no way to download then the right. information, music, for example. So the same thing with the brain. So then the all, all a person needs to uh, figure out is how do we know if the spiritual tradition is speaking the truth? You know, I, for example, I'm 66 years old, and I was, as, as we spoke, uh, or as Tolstoy said, you know, had this bug all my life, and I answered this question to myself only at the, somewhere at the age of 50, and became religious. <laughs> but I didn't come to uh, the religion of Judaism uh, through growing up. I, you know, I grew up in the Soviet Union, it's an atheistic society, and believe it or not, 
in order to finish, to graduate from university, you had to pass a test called scientific atheism. <laughs> Otherwise, you cannot get your <laughs> diploma. So, uh, but in, and nevertheless, you know, I came to, to religion through physics and mathematics. And that is, right. uh, my, my question was always, and now it's my question to many of my students um, is, is the text divine or not? Is it coming from human beings or it is impossible? It comes, you don't have to call it God, call it smart or extraterrestrial or whatever, but could it be written by humans or not? And I came to conclusion it couldn't be. So therefore, I am very comfortable with the idea that there is a mind that is separate, and but then it gets intertwined uh, with the brain. And my question uh, to you <laughs> is, is there a way uh, for you to do your magic and see how, or, or possibly prove that you have the brain without the mind, and then mm. when the mind enters the brain, and and let, let, right. let me fin finish with like yeah. finish my question, and then <laughs> and then see uh, if it's a complete enough question, because um, you probably are familiar with the book by Ibn Alexander, right? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, what was the book? Um, Proof of Heaven, right? Proof of Heaven, right? Right. He he's a neurosurgeon. Uh, in your book, I believe it was um, not principles. Oh, why God won't go away? You wrote uh -huh. that the mind is constructed to perceive and generate spiritual realities. And from what I understood, and correct me, maybe I'm a little cuckoo, but from what I understood from Ibn Alexander's uh, book, his experience, and maybe you will just uh, um, share with our audience what his experience was, if you don't mind, just to remind them. Sure. Uh, from his perspective, he, for seven days, his brain was gone. It was filled with pus. So it could not generate spiritual reality. And yet he had this incredible spiritual journey. So that's a mm. long, long question. I hope I made it clear. <laughs> Well, no, I, you know, uh, what you were, where, where you were headed with that was actually kind of where I was going to answer uh, your question. I mean, one of uh -huh. the, there are several different ways of answering your question, ultimately, which is, you know, how, how can one sort of see this differentiation between human, you know, consciousness and the brain? And um, arguably speaking, I, you know, I think we could theoretically try to find a way of designing some imaging study or something like that that could address that kind of question. Uh, but one one possible answer are these kinds of out of body or near death experiences that you know Dr. Uh, Evan Alexander talks about. Um, you know, a, a lot of people have had near death experiences, and in those experiences, um, as you mentioned, there's this sort of sense that they transcend their body. They they float up to the you know, the, the most common description is that they kind of float up to the to the ceiling, uh, to the corner of the room, and they're able to look down on what's going on in the room around them. And there have been some really interesting uh, descriptions of these experiences. And 
various, you know, anecdotal reports that have tr uh, tried to corroborate what people describe that the nurse had red hair or something like that. And, um, and so they, they, they look at that and see if they can, can show that. Um, there, is, uh, there are a couple of people who are trying to look at that from a more systematic approach and with the idea that if you kind of float up to the top of the ceiling, uh, to, the, to the ceiling and look down, um, you could put like a shelf somewhere and put a, an image, a photograph on the upper side of that that theoretically would only be visible from the vantage point of being at the top corner of the room. And you could put, you know, something very obvious, you know, you could uh, picture my, my example has always been the Eiffel Tower, you know, so like something that obviously everybody would recognize. And then, you know, you uh, go to trauma bays and areas where a near-death experience is more likely to occur. Um, you assess people who have had those kinds of experiences. You look if they've had a near-death experience, and if they felt that they floated up to the to the corner of the room, did they see anything? And if you get a, a hit, so to speak, uh -huh. then that essentially helps to prove that the brain is able to differentiate from the mind or vice versa. Um, so there are studies that are ongoing which are looking into that and trying to see whether or not um, you know, how much we can differentiate the mind from the brain. Now, you know, there's other studies uh, and, a, and a long line of research, which has looked at the ability of human consciousness to affect the world at a distance. And that can include studies of intercessory prayer. Um, it can include studies where, you know, people just consciously have tried to alter the function of a random number generator or, you know, other type of um, physical or physiological process, but not in direct contact. And, you know, the data is very compelling. Um, and uh, the, the question ultimately is still, you know, we have to be, uh, you know, continue to work towards trying to clearly demonstrate those effects. But there are certainly a lot of studies which have, have you know, found significant differences in those kinds of uh, uh, approaches and um, and then if we agree that the, these things are happening, um, we now have to get back to well, what is the mechanism? You know, how is that happening exactly? And um, you know, if we say that uh, the brain kind of uh, receives this information from the soul, but what does that exactly mean? I mean, how do we how do we do that? So there are some fascinating issues and questions for us to think about. Um, I you know, part of what I always challenge my scientific colleagues about is that this whole area of research really challenges science. You know, how do we kind of break out of our very biological approach to things and say, can we do, can we, can we see if there is something that goes beyond just what is purely biological? Uh, and, and we have to be open to both possibilities. So, you know, we have to be open to the possibility that there is. Uh, and ultimately, if we find that there really is not clear evidence for it, we have to be uh, open to the possibility that it doesn't exist um, and that everything just is biological. But until we can uh, demonstrate that absolutely one way or another, um, you know, we have to be open to both sides. And, and again, I think that's where I hope neurotheology can kind of take us, which is to say we've got to be uh, have a healthy respect for all perspectives and um, and we need to engage the science. We need to engage those experiences as as true and as uh, as accurately as possible. Uh, be cautious in our interpretations of the information and the data, and then hopefully come to some uh, very exciting and, and maybe paradigm shifting conclusions. Mm. Do you know, by the way, you're talking about this experience of floating out of your body during the near death experience. Elizabeth Kubler Ross actually described in one of her books exactly that experience where a person. Oh, yeah. 
floated out and, and then described certain objects where, which were on top of the cabinet with, uh, with medical equipment, which she just didn't have exactly. magical yeah. tools that you have, but she, right. she did describe it. Yeah, wow. no, I, I mean, there, there's a lot of excellent, you know, there's a lot of examples of these kinds of experiences and people going down the hall and seeing somebody in another room yeah. and corroborating that. So uh, anecdotally, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of interesting support and it would be very exciting to be able to do this in a in a really systematic way that will hopefully, uh, you know, go beyond just the anecdotal and, and help to really convince um, the larger scientific and, and spiritual community of, uh, of what we, you know, of what what seems to be happening i i wonder if 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 i understand your your work is really going from below to above meaning going from using physical objective apparatus tools to understand our relationship with infinite with god and did you ever think about doing the opposite going from above to below that is using as your guide uh, spiritual tradition, for example, what Kabbalah teaches. Just to, to give you an idea, for example, uh, we know uh, the description of big, big Bang, how the universe came into existence. And I have somewhere a write-up. The description of the Big Bang is absolutely identical to the, the description that Kabbalah uh, and, and you know, it's a Jewish. I'm, I'm saying it for for our audience. Mm -hmm. It's a mystical part of Judaism and Christianity, which adopted this Kabbalah also. So Kabbalah describes the birth of the universe, but only it, it starts with the words Bereshit bara and so on. In the beginning, God created. And so that in the beginning, God created. If we go like what is it like uh, half a page description is totally identical to, to uh, what physicists describe, how the universe came into being. So the same thing. Did you think of taking, let's say, Zohar, Kabbalah, and experimenting from, from above to below, that is, following the map that Kabbalists uh, created for us to understand how the soul goes down into the physical body? Did you ever think about it? <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, first of all, I mean, again, my my own personal explorations, um, which really started out by asking a lot of questions about, you know, the nature of reality and so forth, uh, very much became a kind of philosophical meditation. And through that meditative process, uh, I have, you know, in my own mind, continued to explore those questions. And I often feel that that sort of philosophical meditation and those um, and, and the experiences that one has through those kinds of practices um, have uh, every bit, uh, if, if not more, a profound impact on how we understand the world. So um, the, the science part is helping us to sort of connect those uh, ideas to the material world. But, um, but yes, I mean, definitely I have thought a lot about um, how we can embrace the, the different spiritual traditions and, and what they say about how the world is and see how that uh, may inform the science uh, as much as how the, the science may inform our ability to, to think about these uh, questions from a religious or spiritual perspective. So I do think it goes both ways. I think neurotheology talks about, you know, to me, for neurotheology as a concept and a, and a field to work, 
uh, it needs to be a two-way street, as I always say, and it needs to be, you know, not just science looking at religion and not just religion looking at science, but the two of them looking at each other. But but that does imply then that uh, it really can go in both directions. And um, and I think, you know, obviously there there are many traditions that that look at these kinds of issues and these topics about consciousness and origins and so forth and causal uh, uh, processes that uh, we definitely need to take into consideration. And in fact, um, you know, you had mentioned one of my first books, The Why God Won't Go Away. And in that book, I mean, part of what I have always said is, um, you know, when, when we start to get down to how we as human beings perceive reality and, and quote unquote, know reality, um, we talk about these sort of epistemic states that our brain gets into, that our mind gets into, and we look at the world in certain ways. So the most common one that everybody's familiar with is what we usually refer to as, you know, everyday reality. That's just, you know, getting up in the morning, going to work, you know, whatever, going to school, talking to friends, um, you know, watching television. That's just everyday reality. And we recognize, for example, other perspectives of reality. So again, the other most common one that almost everyone has uh, are dreams. And so when you have a dream, um, no matter how real that dream feels, uh, you know, when you have a very real dream, your, your, your mind is basically treating that as reality. If somebody's chasing you in the dream, you, well, you're running in the dream. You don't typically right. stop and say, oh, well, this is just a dream. Um, but on the other hand, when you wake up, that's usually the first thing that you think is that, okay, now I'm in everyday reality. And that other reality, that dream reality uh, is inferior to this reality. But what is interesting, uh, as you're alluding to, is that in the spiritual reality and the mystical realities of Kabbalah and, and uh, Buddhist and Hindu thoughts and so forth, um, those mystical experiences, um, when a person is in them, uh, they feel incredibly real. But what's fascinating is, is that even when they are not having that experience anymore, they still perceive that experience to represent a more fundamental reality than our everyday reality. And of course, science exists within the everyday reality. So it really does turn the tables on everything. And so I think your question is right on the mark. And certainly to me, again, is something that is fundamental to how we think about neurotheology, which is to look at these questions from a scientific perspective, but also to look at them from the spiritual or mystical perspective and uh, and to use both avenues for us. I mean, we, we don't really know which is the one that ultimately leads to the right answer, I think. Uh, but we got to keep asking those questions and, and hope that we we can finally make some conclusions, depending on how the, the scientific and the spiritual sides all sort of match up and, and what they can say about each other. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, was, I, I have so many questions and, and time is limited, so I'm <laughs> looking now at what questions I, I, I must ask you. You know, the show, <laughs> my show is called... I can Dr. always Resnick come Features. back. <laughs> what, what, what? <laughs> I, I, I can always come back for the remaining yeah, yeah. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> you know, my, my show is called Dr. Peter Resnick's Toolbox, and it's kind mm. of a weird title. And the reason I call it Toolbox is because I am very interested in really tools that can help people uh, live better quality of right. life. And that's what I've been doing for over 40 years. So, mm -hmm. and that's why I want to ask you, would you share with our audience, what are the practical uh, uh, tools that you have that could benefit people uh, now? That is, they could learn from uh, their 
uh, neurologist, if they can go and explore, like you talk about one in one of the books, I don't remember which one, you talk about uh, neuroemotional techniques. Is it something mm, they can yeah. go and, and see new neurologist and he will test them, he will work with them? Practically, yeah, how well, could so, they apply your knowledge that you're sharing? Sure, sure. So, I mean, there there is definitely a lot of sort of uh, applied neurotheology, if you will, you know, the more practical side of it. And uh, and it's a very important side of it. Um, and that really does look at how different practices, different approaches, different things that people can do to help, as you said, make their lives better. Um, some are very sim simple, you know, uh, meditation as a general statement has generally been shown to be very useful at reducing anxiety and stress in people and depression. And so, you know, looking to a meditation-based program, uh, whether it's something that is part of your own, you know, current belief system. So if you happen to be Jewish, you know, uh, engaging in Kabbalistic uh, practices, if you're uh, a Christian, maybe, you know, engaging in uh, intensive prayer practices or something like that. Um, you know, each of those can be very valuable for people to do them. Uh, obviously, it has to be consistent with your belief system. And, and a number of practices have been highly secularized. So things like mindfulness, for example, uh, are, are programs that, uh, that anybody can do. And they, they don't really, they sort of distilled out the, the spiritual side. But that doesn't mean that they can't be useful for people. But most likely, they're going to be uh, more clinically a, 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 effective so that they're going to just they're just going to kind of reduce your anxiety or stress but they're not necessarily going to lead you to some sort of spiritual enlightenment um, for the spiritual side of things um, usually again you know one might turn to the existing traditions that have uh, guided so many people over the years over the millennia to, towards a greater sense of spiritual well-being um, and one has to find the path that really works best for them um, different rituals and uh, and practices like meditation and prayer, when done very intensively, can lead to these very intense kinds of experiences. You, you mentioned something called the neuroemotional technique, uh, mm -hmm. which is an interesting combination, actually, of several different um, uh, psychologically oriented approaches that include both uh, knowledge of the the body and the brain and how they interact with each other, the use of acupressure and the idea of how different energies flow through the body, uh, and those can you know people can go to various counselors and therapists who do that kind of a technique, and um, and that can be very useful for helping people um, through various traumas and, um, and and you know very emotionally difficult uh, challenges that people may face in their lives. So part of what's important in answering the question, I think, is that it does depend a lot on what the goal of the person is. You know, are they looking to reduce their depression? Are they looking to de-stress? Are they looking for some kind of spiritual enlightenment? Um, and then from there, one looks at practices that are consistent and, and grow out of traditions that they may have already been a part of. So if you are Catholic, then you might look into Catholic prayer and meditation and so forth, if that still has a lot of meaning to you. Or you can look into other kinds of approaches that ultimately are consistent with where you're headed and, and what your pathways are and, and, and make sense to you and, and, uh, and hope that by going through these pathways, um, it can ultimately lead to a, uh, a sense of enlightenment, a sense of transformation for the person. Um, one of the things uh, that we talk about a lot uh, in our book called How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, um, we look at a, we, a lot of the data that we present 
is from a survey that we did, uh, an online survey of people's most intense spiritual experiences. And um, uh, one of the real take-home messages for me in all of this has been that out of these couple thousand descriptions of these experiences, you know, some people were really trying for it. Some people were really trying to achieve some kind of enlightenment or transformation. And other people, it just kind of hit them out of nowhere. So uh, there's no one path. There's no one way that works for everyone. But what we also learned is that, you know, there wasn't inherently something special about these individuals. Um, it really is something that can happen to anyone and it can happen to everyone. So I think the good news is, is that no matter who you are and no matter what your belief systems are and whether you're an agnostic, an atheist, a deeply religious individual, um, any one of us can see the world in a new way that helps to connect us in a, a greater way, helps to see the overall sort of interconnectedness of the world and of all things in the world in a different kind of way, give us a, a greater sense of meaning and purpose in life. And so there are, are lots of different approaches that people can ultimately take. Mm, that brings us to my next question. Uh, you, you just spoke about people who have the capacity to get in touch with other realities. I know someone you you mentioned that you actually worked with people uh, who were psychics who could communicate mm. on distance and so on. I know somebody who is, uh, there are many people who say that they ha can, but they cannot deliver. I know someone who is the real thing. He received uh, an award from a New York police department for finding murder weapons, of course, he couldn't, they couldn't say, write the word, thank you, you're Mr. Psychic, right, right. but just gave him an award because he found murder weapon. Without that, they could not kind of, kind of nail the guy. Uh, mm. He, and I was at a lecture where people testified where he healed bones and they produced um, x-rays of bones being healed and he did it from the distance. So he, he's really a real thing. And my question to you is, and, and, I know him personally, but there, I know of a number of people uh, in the world who do these kind of things. And my question to you, is there something different about how their brain is wired that they're able to do this? Because this, well, I, this, I friend, sure. this friend yeah. that I mentioned, he actually says, no, you can work. Yes, I received kind of from childhood this gift, but anybody can develop it if they work hard on it. So I'm sorry. Mm. Uh, well, that, so, so a couple of answers here. I mean, I, you know, on one hand, um, there are probably some elements that uh, are unique in terms of at least brain function when people are engaged in that kind of process. For example, you know, I mentioned the medium study that we did. And one of the things that we noticed in the brain scan is that the frontal lobes, which are right behind the forehead, they tended to have decreased activity when the mediums were in the trance state and, uh, you know, apparently trying to communicate with, with the spirit world and the, the, the spirits of the dead. So this makes a lot of sense in the, because our frontal lobe normally is kind of on and keeps our world in, in a very sharp order and keeps us being very purposeful about things. But when we shut the frontal lobe down, we become more receptive to the, to the world in general. And hence, you know, if there are other energies or other things out there that we typically are not able to perceive, then by sort of quieting things down, by quieting our mind down, we may be able to 
pick up this information that usually gets kind of lost in the noise of the world. Um, just like if you just sit in silence, you'll hear a lot more that, you know, and, and you'll hear very subtle things that you completely miss when you're just, you know, walking down a city street and there's all kinds of noises all over the place. So going out to the country and, and, and being quiet and, and being with that quietness can be very effective for people. Uh, so I, I think that there are some specific ways in which our brain can potentially do that. Now, with that in mind, um, I would argue that uh, pretty much, you know, every capacity, every capability that human beings have, there's uh, to some degree a bell curve, if you will, of people's abilities. And it's uh, like music. I mean, there are, you know, we all can play an instrument. And if we all practice for six hours a day, we would all be pretty good you know, musicians. But there are still those who are Mozarts of the world who there's just something else going on that, that um, you know, makes music a whole different thing for them. And there are other people who are pretty tone deaf. And, you know, if you give them a, a piano, they can play the notes, but they're not going to be that great musician. And I think that that same kind of thing is, is what I would say about you know, various spiritual practices and, and, uh, and experiences with people and different abilities that people may have, that there are, you know, are likely some people that are just more facile at being able to do it, um, are able to engage it more easily, more quickly. But I would also agree that um, that almost all of them like music uh, or like any skill, uh, playing tennis or whatever, um, if you practice it enough, you will get better at it and you will be able to do it uh, more effectively. But exactly, you know, I still think that there's going to be some differentiation in terms of some people being able to do certain things better than other people. And that's just, again, sort of the natural aspect of, of how the universe works. You know, there's just everybody, there's different abilities across uh, various domains of, of, of life, uh, cognition, emotion, and so forth, that some people just are different than others. So um, it doesn't mean that they're different in some kind of, you know, they're not a different species or something like that. But mm-hmm. but I think that there are different ways in which their brain is able to just do that more more easily, just like some people are better at math than other people are better at at music or whatever. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, one quick question. Uh, it's more to uh, Andrew Newberg rather than Dr. Newberg. How did you manage to, to, to form this wonderful relationship with Mark Robert Waldman, with whom you are writing these books? You, you co-authored with him a number of books, right? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've, I've been very lucky to have had many wonderful people in my life. And uh, Mark was uh, another one of those wonderful people. Um, we, you know, just very serendipitously, uh, he had uh, he was a uh, an editor at a at a publishing house and they wanted to include uh, an excerpt of one of my books. And um, we got to talking and he said, what else are you working on? And I said, well, I'm trying to develop some new ideas and his background is in transpersonal psychology. And, uh-huh. uh, and so, you know, he also had a lot of interest in the same basic things. And, uh, it was also at a time where, um, uh, I had, uh, lost my, uh, this one mentor, this Eugene DeQuilly, who was the, the, the person who had been, you know, specifically looking at the same kinds of questions, uh, since the 1970s, he and I connected back in about, uh, 1990, 1991, uh, and worked up until his death in 1998. So I was sort of looking for other people to to work with, and and Mark Waldman came along, and uh, it uh, 
it was a beautiful friendship. Uh, <laughs> it looked like the beginning of a beautiful relationship, uh, as the movie says. So um, it's been great working with him, and we continue to think about new ideas and new projects. And I, I've been working with other people around the world uh, try, who all have an interest in neurotheology and trying to look at the practical applications, look at how it might be applied to different traditions like Judaism, Christianity, and so forth. In fact, uh, a, a, um, a medical student who is now a psychiatry resident here uh, at Thomas Jefferson University is a rabbi by training, and, and so one of the most recent wow. books I published was called The Rabbi's Brain. Right. And we talked well, about oh, I have all, all I have questions about that, too. Maybe I will invite you again, if you don't mind, for another well, show. We can we'll talk, talk about, about it. The Rabbi's Brain next time. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we have still a few minutes. I want to ask you something. You know, you, you are younger than me. Maybe you didn't come to this point yet, but a few years ago, I started feeling, you know, that I have to raise kind of new generation to do what I do. And I yeah. moved more away away from seeing, I still see clients slash patients, but I started seeing more and more students kind of teaching them all that I do. Are you raising, or you may be too young for it, are you raising new generation of, of people who, well, I, who have the bug? Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope so. Um, I, I love teaching. Um, I was uh, a teacher uh, at my old uh, university, University of Pennsylvania, for many, many years and taught in the Department of Religious Studies and also uh, in what was called the, uh, the Program of Brain, uh, uh, brain and Behavior and, um, uh, uh, excuse me, the Biological Basis of, of Behavior. And um, and so, you know, have worked with a lot of students over the years. Um, some of the most recent work I've done is with a, a student of mine named uh, David Yaden, who's now on, you know, it's gotten his Ph.D., so I can't even really call him a student anymore. He's a colleague. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I, I love working with people. I love working with um, students. And uh, yes, I mean, you know, the, the next generation, um, you know, we, we've got to develop these kinds of passions for inquiry in, in everyone. And uh, so it's very exciting to me when I do hear from younger students and uh, and uh, if whether they're in high school or college or, or medical school, um, you know, or different or theological seminary or whatever. Um, it's great to see people uh, engaging these kinds of questions from all different kinds of domains and, and around the world. And that to me has also been very exciting to get you know, emails from people from China and India and the Middle East and Africa and all that. So, uh, you know, it's great to, to be able to communicate with people from around the world. And uh, I'd love to just keep trying to build the interest and the excitement in this as a field. And, and I hope that uh, this can really bring, you know, my, my, my idealistic and hopeful goal is that it really teaches us about ourselves and it teaches us to be uh, open and understanding and compassionate about those people who have different belief systems from us. Uh, it helps us to understand them, and hopefully it helps us to find ways of, of working together um, to uh, engage and appreciate and, um, uh, and really, you know, uh, kind of rejoice in our differences, but also learn from them and uh, hopefully develop our own pathways to enlightenment, both on a, on a, on a global scale as well as on an individual scale. Dr. Newberg, you, I have to tell you, I love your books, but I admire your eloquence and clarity and simplicity. I think, uh, uh, I think that Albert Einstein said, if you cannot explain some, something simply, you don't know it well enough. And I feel you know so well your subject because you explain everything so clearly and simply. Thank you 
so, so much for giving your time today. Uh, and I hope we can meet again. I can invite you again for another show. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you so much. It was a pleasure and I'll be happy to come on again and again. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you, you too. Bye-bye.